Hey, it's Scott Orn of Cruise Consulting, and welcome to another episode of Founders and Friends. And before we start the podcast, let's give a quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is the new cool payroll tool that we see a lot of startups using. Rippling is great for your traditional HR and payroll. They integrate very nicely. But guess what? They did another thing. They integrate into your IT infrastructure. They make it really easy for when you hire someone to spin up all the web services and their computer, which sounds kind of like not a huge deal. But actually, we did the study at Cruise. We spend $420 on average just getting a new employee's computer up and running and their web service up and running. It's actually a really big deal. It saves a lot of money. And the dogs are eating the dog food. Like We see a lot of startups coming in to Cruise now using Rippling. So please check out Rippling. Great service. We love it. I think we have a podcast with Parker Conrad. You can hear it from his own words, but we're seeing them take market share. So shout out to Rippling. And now to another awesome podcast at Cruise Consulting's Founders and Friends. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Olm. Welcome to Founders of Friends podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And today, my very special guest is Sunil Gupta, author of Backable. Welcome, Sunil. Hey, it's good to be here. It, you are uh, here along with Matt Zeiser, VP of Operations at Cruise Consulting. Welcome, Matt. Hi, guys. And Matt and Sunil are old friends, and we were both reading Backable and wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about it. Sunil, do you mind just kind of retracing your career a little bit and then talking about how you had the idea for Backable? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, probably about a year before I met Matt, or a couple of years maybe, I was starting out my career uh, really as a writer. I was working for the Democratic National Committee at that time. Uh, so 2004 uh, was the convention in Boston, Democratic National Convention. And I'm backstage and, and you know, I'm, I'm basically helping people get ready for their, their speeches and there is, oh, there are all the usual suspects back there. It's, it's John Kerry at the time. It's, it's the Gores. It's the Clintons. And, but there was one face that nobody seemed to recognize. And it was a state senator from Illinois who goes up <laughs> awesome. and, and gives his speech and completely just mystifies, you know, everyone in, in the audience and then everybody watching the millions and millions of people. And, and, and I became, I think, uh, one of many, many young people uh, that night that sort of became obsessed with Barack Obama, wanted to understand his story, and a lot of his stories featured in this book. But I, I also decided that I wanted to go to Chicago and and really just be a part of, you know, what ended up being his presidential campaign. So knocking on doors, but also spending time at headquarters, helping out with all, all sorts of things, including what was happening on the technology side. And along the way, I, I got a chance to, to, to meet some folks in, in Silicon Valley, one of which was Reed Hoffman, very interested in politics himself, and uh, started to share ideas with him. And eventually, um, you know, he, he was at that time chairman of Mozilla. He had started LinkedIn, but he was also chairman at Mozilla. And he decided, you know, he asked me if I'd be interested in coming on, on board over there because they had this sort of activist mentality at Mozilla. Yeah. You know, it was, it, it, was, it was basically activists who code. And, uh, and I loved it. And I went out there and I spent time with the team and I, and I felt like this was, this was really home for me. And really kind of what just happened, happened from there was it just kind of laid this, this groundwork for a career, you know, kind of a strange career that my family still doesn't quite understand. You know, that's kind of this mix of politics and, and tech and startups and writing now. 
And uh, and and it's kind of all brought me full full circle to that that night I was backstage in, in 2004. Uh, along the way, I, I would say that, that that one thing that happened across every sort of situation that I was in is I noticed something that I think we all sort of kind of get, which is that creativity and persuasion are two different things. Right? You can have a brilliant idea, you could be a great candidate for a job, uh, and you can still be dismissed. It, it happens all of the time. Uh, you know, I was just speaking to an audience before uh, we, this conversation, and we were talking about penicillin and how in the 1920s, Dr. Alexander Fleming invented penicillin. And he was like, my gosh, I have this cure that could save hundreds of thousands of lives immediately. And he was dismissed. It, it took 10 years for people to come around on the idea that penicillin was a life-saving medication. Today, it, it, to date, it has saved 200 million lives, yeah. and it almost never came to exist. And so it happens all the time. And and it got me interested in this idea of backable people. And backable people are people who are able to get inside a room and they're able to really just rally us. They're able to convince us to take a chance on them. And I wanted to understand, like, what is this mysterious it quality that helps people perform so well in an interview, in an audition, in a sales pitch, pitching investors? Um, and so I started to spend time with backable people across all different walks of life, from Oscar-winning filmmakers to celebrity chefs to founders of iconic companies. And what I began to realize is that this it quality very much can be learned. Because if you rewind the clock back to when these people got their start, they weren't born backable. They weren't naturally backable. They learned how to do it along the way. And so what this book is about is about the seven most surprising qualities that I observed that seem to be common amongst all backable people. That's really incredible. And there's a, there's a lot in there, but you're right. There is something of, I actually feel it with you just interviewing you now. Like you have a certain charisma, a certain clarity of communication. And it's like, I want to be involved. I want to work with you. I want to do something with you. And that is a really powerful feeling because you're right, especially in the startup world, like that penicillin example you have, like VC funding and, and investing in a startup to help the founder kind of pursue their dream and change the world, it's not equal. And I, I always tell startup, like a lot of the clients we work with, like sometimes it depends on like how good of a salesperson you are or how yeah. good you are at convincing someone that they should get behind you. So I, it's really cool that you wrote this book. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book was like this concept of like, emotional runway and letting your ego go. And maybe you can kind of talk about, cause it, it's a very humbling experience to ask for, whether you're running for president and asking people to vote for you or asking people to use Mozilla, which is like an, the open source version, you know, of a browser yeah. or asking VCs to invest in you. Like, how do you think about that emotional runway and, and letting go? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the concept was first introduced to me when I was leaving uh, Groupon. I had been at Groupon for, for a little over three years at that point. I was there from 2009 when it was it was pre-Series A, and I left uh, in 2012 when we had gone public as a company at over 10,000 employees. It was, it, was, it was a really wild ride. Um, but I, I knew at that time that I really wanted to go start my own thing. And what I decided to do was, I think what, what a lot of people who have been to business school will, will do is they'll, they'll kind of make a spreadsheet of their ideas. So I had, this, <laughs> I, had this, I had this spreadsheet of ideas and I had like these columns to the spreadsheet and you know, column B was like market size, bigger the better. Column C was competition, smaller the better, right? Like just, just classic sort of business school analysis. And 
I went and shared this spreadsheet with a mentor of mine. And she looks at the ideas on the spreadsheet and she looks at me and she says, let me ask you a question. Which of these ideas really makes you come alive? And I look back at the spreadsheet and I realize that none of them really made me come alive. Yeah, yeah. You know, my, my, my past several years have been spent in the e-commerce world. And so most of the ideas were sort of e-commerce related. And on an intellectual level, I felt like, hey, these were like ideas that can fit the market. Like we could do something here. Yeah. But was I really passionate about it? No, I, I really wasn't. And she told me a story in that moment that, that I'll, I'll never forget, which is, which is about Martin Luther King. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize this. I didn't, that, that you know, MLK was, was very young when he decided that he was going to step into this leadership role civil rights movement. He was like in his late 20s, early 30s. And, um, you know, he went to go see a mentor of his, a guy named Howard Thurman. And he was asking him, like, should I do this? Like, is this something I should go do? And he, and one of the things that MLK said to Howard Thurman is, I, I think the world, you know, really obviously needs this movement. And Howard Thurman said to him, don't ask what the world needs. Yeah. Ask what makes you come alive. Yeah. Because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I just, I had to take this step back and, and say like, what actually makes me come alive? And that's what really took me into healthcare, right? Healthcare made me come alive. I remembered how my father struggled with his health. And, and it all comes to this idea of emotional runway, right? We talk a lot about financial runway, right? And companies running out of financial runway. Do I have enough money in the bank to make my idea work? But there's another type of runway that we don't talk about enough, which is emotional runway. Do you have enough gas in the tank to get through the rejections, to get through the inevitable failures and setbacks that you're going you're gonna to go through whenever you're trying to bring something new into the world? And that can only happen if your idea truly makes you come alive. Yeah. It's, it's actually some of the best advice. I think, you know, I agree with you so much because I know at Cruise, like Vanessa started Cruise nine years ago and I joined six years ago. And even when like we're pretty successful but it's still really hard and there's still curveballs out of nowhere that you can never anticipate or real lows and that emotional, like that fulfillment, or I always kind of think of the concept of like filling up your gas tank. Mm. And when you do something that help, like for us or for me, when we do something to help a founder get funded or help them get bought or just solve simple problems or stressful problems like IRS stuff or financial models, mm. whatever it is, it fills up my gas tank. Yeah. And then I can drive a little bit farther. And even if I hit a couple potholes, I'm okay. But it yeah. is it's like that, that mentor who gave you that advice was really great advice because otherwise you just, you run out of gas and you, and you don't make it to the finish line. I mean, did you ever check back in with that mentor and be like, yeah. oh gosh, you know, thank you so much. And oh, yes, yeah. and you know, and obviously writing now was a big part of that for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and I'm, it's it's an interesting point you bring up because when I'm when I'm talking to audiences now, one of the things I I ask people is like who who took a chance on you in your yeah. career, right? Yeah. Who, who mentored you? Who who really was a difference maker? And then I ask exactly what you just asked, which is like, have you gone back to them and let them know? And it's really really surprising. It, it's yeah. it's it's almost always that maybe twenty to thirty percent will say yes. The vast majority are like. No, I no, I haven't actually. Yeah. And this is a good reminder. Let me take a note to do that. Yeah. And it, you know, it kind of it kind of just makes me realize, like you know, Matt and I, you know, we went to the same grad school. Like we had some professors there that probably made a huge difference in our lives. I know, I know, I did. I haven't. You know, there's there's quite a few of them that I still haven't gone back to and said, like, hey, I just want to let you know 
you made a big difference, yeah. right? And the chances are you have probably made a big difference in other people's lives and they haven't had an opportunity to come back to you, which just just shows us that the impact that we have sometimes is, is a lot of times is it's invisible. Yeah. Well, you're going to have that the, with Backable, the book, you're going to have that. And I hope every, people who read this or hear this interview shoot you emails and kind of fill up your gas tank a little bit more too, because you're doing like, it's a, re- it's a really cool book and there's a lot of really good stories in here. Matt we were, Matt and I were kind of, we'll kind of trade off here a little bit, but Matt had um, an, an item in the book that he was really excited about talking to you. Yeah. Well, there, there's a couple things, but bef- before I get to that, I want to go back to this concept of emotional runway because there's also an anecdote you share in the book. I think when you're, you're on the way to Apple and you find out that Tim Cook is going to be in your meeting and you didn't know that he was going to be there and you kind of start to have like a mini panic attack. And I loved, I loved your exercise. (laughs) I loved your exercise, which is, it's basically this concept of what's the worst that can happen kind of thing. And it's funny because I remember years ago, I was going through some kind of career decision or something. I was talking to my mom actually, and she kind of walked me through this, a similar thing. She was like, what's the worst that can happen? You could be homeless and have to move back home. (laughs) <laughs> which, which for her, which for her is, was probably would have been awesome. But I was like, okay, yeah, like that, you know, okay, so yeah, you're right. Like, so I think I just want to, you know, call that particular point out because I think like it's like it's almost like just facing your fear and just putting it all down on paper. All right, what's the worst that can happen? And then yeah, you can you can kind of look at it and sort of visualize it and then move on from there. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a shift in the way that I think about fear and doubt. Because the way that I used to deal with any type of negative emotion is I would I would tend to sort of argue against it, right? So, so I'll, I'll have I'll have a thought that will say, "Hey, you know, this thing's not going to work," and I, and then and then I'll argue against it and I'll say, "Actually, it is going to work," and we'll kind of just ping pong back and forth. And that's typically just how I handled any type of doubt that would arise in my mind. Well, you know, somebody gave me a piece of advice as I was writing this book, which was, you, you know, instead of trying to push fear out actually pull it in and see and just examine it a little bit more closely. Um, because when you can do that, then you can actually see how absurd some of these thoughts really are. Some of these things that are causing you physically to feel anxious. And so, uh, I got to put it into practice and the way that it happened was I was, I was, you know, that at that time I had started a company called rise. It was a one-on-one nutrition coaching company. Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty, it was a pretty early, we were, we were doing some pretty early stuff when it came to telehealth, especially on a mobile phone. And so Apple got pretty interested in, in what we were building. And I get a, I get an email one day saying, Hey, would you like to come to headquarters in Cupertino and, and, you know, share some ideas with the team. And, uh, and I said, yeah. And, gosh, I'd be really excited to go do that. And, you know, I think I'm thinking to myself, maybe there can be a great partnership out of this. So, you know, I really prepped for the meeting. As I'm on my way to Cupertino, I'm driving down 280. I get an email and I'm checking my phone (laughs) and it it says, Tim Cook uh, may be in this meeting. Um, just so you know, just FYI, right? That's awesome. Yeah. And I'm like, and, and and you know, Tim Cook is really into healthcare and, and, and Apple is trying to figure out its health strategy at this point in time. And, I just, you know, I get one of those thoughts in my head, which is like, you're going to blow this meeting. And it, it starts as a whisper. And by the time I'm, I'm in Apple's headquarters parking lot, it, it had turned into this shriek, right? Like you're going to, you're going to, you're going to mess everything up. And so I'm, I do not know what to do. Cause like it, the meeting's going to start in like 10 minutes and I've got to get myself into the right mindset. 
And so I decide like, hey, let me let me try this technique of instead of trying to push it out, let me try to pull it in. And I, 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 I pull out a piece of paper and I write down at the top of a piece of paper, you're going to blow this meeting. And then I follow this technique that the friend had taught me. And I ask myself, all right, if that's true, then what happens? And I write it down. I write, well, then Apple's not going to want to partner with you. And I write, okay, if that's true, then what happens? I write, well, you know, you missed out on a huge opportunity and maybe maybe your startup goes under. And I write, okay, if that's true, then what happens? And it's like, well, then no VC is ever going to want to invest in you again. And I and I continued down the list. If that's true, then what happens? That's true. That happens. And I kept writing it down until finally I'm like, well, you're going to die alone, and you know, your your family's going to leave you. You're, you're, you know, you just and, and and you would think that an exercise like this would make you far more anxious, but. I have now done this over and over again. I, I've coached people who, who have done this over and over again. And what it does is it just makes you realize the absurdity, the absurdity yeah. that it's actually driving the anxiety yeah. sometimes. Now, it's not to say that it's completely all good. Like it was a, it was a big meeting. Like I needed to do well in that meeting. But I, you know, I didn't want to walk into that room feeling like if I lost or if that didn't go well, I was going to lose my family. You know, yeah. it, 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 and, and yet that's the type of anxiety that we sometimes hide. Um, in these moments. And if you can unpack that, what it allows you to do is walk in with, I think, the right mindset, with a, fre- with a fresh pair of eyes as to truly what's at stake here. I, I totally agree. And for me, I, that happens to me sometimes, just I'll wake up at three in the morning and I find that the writing it down or just really thinking through it helps me cycle through it and actually just process it instead of like almost like a computer iterating back and forth between programs that never gets anything done. Yeah. By actually focusing on it and actually writing it down, it really helps me just get through it. So that's it's that's a really good tip. It's a really good and and for all the entrepreneurs who are listening to this, like you are gonna have like 50 of these a year, you know, 50 of these moments a year that you're just gonna need to get good at processing and, and using your technique. Hmm. Hey, it's Scott Orna Cruise Consulting. And before we get back to the podcast. Quick shout out to ChartHop. ChartHop is one of my favorite new SaaS tools on the market. And basically what ChartHop does is it puts your org chart in the cloud. And I always like to say like it brings transparency to your organization. And so, you know, everyone in your organization can see who they report to. They can see the full org chart of the company and how their group relates to other groups. It also has a lot of information on the individuals of the company. And so you can click on the ChartHop profile and just get like, where people live, their experience, you know, Slack handles, all this kind of stuff. And it's just a really great tool. The other thing is ChartOp has started doing some cool stuff around compensation and budgeting planning. And so you can actually start seeing like what the cost structure of the company look like during certain kind of scenarios. So I'm loving ChartOp. Check it out, ChartOp.com. We use it at Cruise, really like it. And I can't recommend it enough. All right, back to the podcast. Matt, what was one of the one of the your other favorite moments? Yeah, so the you know this the the emphasis on when an entrepreneur is creating their story, this emphasis on telling the story versus just the you know just sharing data, I think is is really important because I think a lot of people, depending on what what background you might be coming from, just think, okay, I'm going to put together some really great big you know total addressable market slides and some really great numbers. And the story is just going to kind of tell itself. And, yeah. and but so I really love that emphasis that, that, no, like you should really, you know, the numbers are fine, you know, make sure the numbers are good, but really focus on, you know, an emotional connection with your audience to get them 
to walk out of that meeting and, and remember something versus, you know, some, some up and to the right chart that you share. But I, you know, one thing that I you want, wanted to kind of just talk about is how, how do you, you know, we've got like recently, right. We work is like the most classic example of yeah. one of these stories that maybe went over indexed on the emotion, right? Like yep. it, it, uh, you know, this guy was obviously very charismatic and able to really get people behind him. But, you know, when you kind of look under the hood, uh, you know, maybe there was some things that weren't as, you know, didn't justify the, the valuations and everything that, that he ended up, um, getting. So just curious, like how you, how you balance this need to tell the story and be, you know, connect emotionally, but also like be rooted in reality and not get, you know, it's like that, that fine line between, you know, aspiration and uh reality yeah because we need both you know it's a story that brings us in it's substance that 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 keeps us there you know and 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 the first time that i i sort of realized this was when i was pitching i was actually pitching tim ferris on on my startup and at that point in time i'd gone like zero for over 12 right I, i was getting no luck with investors and as it turns out, Tim Ferriss passed as well. But I was really interested in, in in trying to get his help because he had just written the Four Hour Body. Mm. I was doing this. I was doing this, you know, nutrition focused company, and he was investing in tech companies. And the way that my pitch sort of was laid out for Tim is that I had spent probably the first eighty to ninety percent really talking mainly about the market and talking about sort of the substance of the idea, and you know, talking about the rising rates of diabetes and hypertension and, and obesity. And at the very end of my pitch, I told a story, and it was about my father, who in his early 40s had, his, had, had a triple bypass surgery. Mm. It, was, it was an emergency. They rushed him to the hospital. He's in the OR before we know it. I remember visiting the hospital the next day, and it, and it felt like he had, he had aged like 20 years overnight. And when we left the hospital, what I remember is that they gave us a couple of pieces of paper. And on those couple of pieces of paper were things like eat broccoli, you know, eat Brussels sprouts. You know, we, we were an Indian family. We didn't, we didn't eat broccoli. Yeah. We didn't eat Brussels yeah. sprouts. Right? Mm-hmm. There was nothing on that piece of paper about chicken tikka masala. And, <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, lucky, lucky for us, a, insurance helped pay for the cost of a nutritionist to really kind of help us customize our lifestyle into something that would actually stick. And I believe that that's, that's the reason my, that my dad is alive today is because we got the help of that person. And so I'm telling this story to Tim and he looks at me and he's like, why the hell did you save that story for the very end? Almost as a footnote of your presentation, you should tell that story up front. Yeah. And then, and then talk about the market and talk about the number, talk about the, the millions of people out there who are going through your, their own version of your father's story. And so I did. And, and part of the hesitation, by the way, of doing that was like, well, we're talking about an Indian guy here. Like if I'm talking to, you know, white male investors just happen, happen to be, are they going to get that? Is that something that they're, they're going to resonate with? And as it turns out, I think this idea of what we call in the book, casting a central character for your idea becomes even more important when the person across the table doesn't really know the use case very well because you're really walking them through the storyboard of what this person is really going through, right? And then you're, and then of course you're talking about the numbers. You're talking about again the millions of people out there that are going through the same exact problem. It's both. It, the the story brings you in, and the substance keeps you there. Yeah. 
That's such a good observation. I mean, people love stories. They remember stories. They connect with the stories. That That is really, really well done. There's And then I, I, we don't have a ton of time, but there is something I like, and Matt loved this too, but the, the idea of incorporating participation in your product mm -hmm. service that you're doing, and you have this great anecdote um, about kick mix and maybe you can just share that one. And, but I think it's really powerful. I know like at cruise, when we're indoctrinate, we kind of try to indoctrinate new clients into doing things the right way and yeah. we'll be there, but we need you to meet us halfway All instead right. of just promising we're going to solve every problem with them with, without, you know, them having to participate. I think participation actually goes a really long way when you're providing a service or selling something. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm curious, Scott, like, tell me, can you tell me more about that? Like why, why, why is it that you want them to meet you halfway? Because I think it makes it, it gets them to buy in. And I think when they are, first of all, it's very difficult for us to do like their taxes correctly or their financials correctly, but getting them to participate a little bit gets them to take ownership of the yeah. process and with their buy-in, we can actually do a better job and they can do a better job. And the final part of that is they actually tend to appreciate us a little bit more hmm. if they can kind of see behind the curtain. Hmm. One might think like, oh, this is all just numbers or dumping some, a spreadsheet into something else, but it's actually not. There's a lot of human judgment involved. And so hmm. by get like by them owning part of the process, we're on the same team together and they yeah. actually tend to have a much better outcome with us. I, I love, I love that. Yeah. The story, the story, which is highly relevant to what everything you just said is that in the 1940s, Betty Crocker introduced instant cake mix to the market. And they were so excited about this product because it, it was so simple. All you had to do was pour water into a mix, pop it in the oven and voila, you get this really tasty treat. So they are stunned when they find out that sales just are abysmal. Like no one's really buying this instant cake mix and they can't figure out why. And so they hire this psychologist, a guy named Ernest Dykta to go out into the field and start talking to homes around the United States. And, and what Dykta comes back with is really fascinating. He says, I think that you have made the process of making a cake too easy, too simple. You have basically removed the customer from the creative process so much so that when the cake comes out of the oven, they actually don't feel like it's really theirs. They actually don't feel any ownership over it. So, so Dykta's recommendation is, well, why don't you remove one ingredient, one key ingredient, and just see what happens? And so they do. They, they remove the egg. So now, as a customer, you have to crack and mix in your own fresh egg. And sales just take off. Because now, when, when the cake comes out of the oven, people feel like they had ownership of it as well. And you know, look, this is something that's kind of just been unpacked over and over again. There was a group of Harvard economists that called this the IKEA effect, which basically mm. tells us that we place up to five times the amount of value on something that we help build yeah. than something that we simply buy. Yeah, which gets which gets directly into what you just said about in, about doing it doing it together. Because look, we've been told that creativity innovation is is kind of a two step formula. You come up with a great idea and you execute on it really well. But there, there is this hidden step in between, and this is where you get your early employees, you get customers, you get partners involved in the process. You allow them to crack their own egg into the mix. In the book, we call this flipping outsiders into insiders so that when you show up to execution phase, like you show up together and everybody feels ownership over the cake that comes out of the oven. 
I, I really think that you can you can trace every successful organization, every successful product, every successful political movement back to that hidden step. I totally believe that. Matt had a good announcement before we turn on the the can or the uh, recording. Matt was talking about how that how Facebook applied that. That was a Matt. Do you want to share that real fast? Yeah. Well, it's the the classic uh, poke functionality early on in Facebook, you know, yeah. days to get people engaged. It was sort of a useless, you know, functionality, but it, <laughs> it, you know, they, they'll credit it as something that really, really lit a fire under their users and got engagement. And then they've, they've since abandoned it because I think it yeah. probably got out of control at some point. But like, um, it's just a classic to me, it's a classic tech, tech related example. And I'm sure there's others out there where, you know, you add something sort of human to the product to kind of, you know, again, that, that even, it goes back to that emotional connection too. It's like you add this human element, it creates an emotional connection. It gives them participation. It just brings everybody closer in, uh, you know, to what you're trying to do. It's really amazing. Well, Sunil, we have to be, I've I've talked to you all day, but we're got to be respectful of your time. Maybe you can just tell everyone, you know, how they can find backable, where they can buy it. Yeah. And just kind of talk about the book a little bit. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. The website is backable.com. Uh, so if you go there, there's all different ways to buy the book or check. There's some free content there as well. And and we can connect there too. Um, yeah. You know, if I could leave you with one thing, it, it's really this little routine I play with my, my daughters every morning. I have two daughters, eight-year-old and a four-year-old. And I ask them every morning, what is the meaning of life? And they say, to find your gift. And then I ask, well, what is the purpose of life? And they say, to give it away. And it's all this, it's based on this this, this quote from Picasso, meaning of life is to find your gift. The the purpose of life is to give it away. And Backable really at its core is all about how do we give our gift away. And what I realized is that there are three words, I think, that tend to hold us back from doing that. Uh, I'm not ready. Like I'm not ready to step into that leadership role. I'm not ready to run with that new idea. I'm not ready to speak my mind. And what I can tell you now, after after spending over five years writing this book, studying hundreds of extraordinary people, I think the one common denominator is that none of them were really ready. Yeah. You know, three friends from design school were not ready to start Airbnb. A mid-level talent manager wasn't ready to start SoulCycle. You know, a 15-year-old from Stockholm, Sweden wasn't ready to build an environmental movement. But today, Greta Thunberg is Time Magazine's youngest person of the year. And there were setbacks and there were failures along the way, but they all tended to play what I call the game of now. And in the game of now, the opposite of success is not failure. It's boredom. So let's do the things that make us come alive and let's find good people to join us along the way, because if you're listening to this and you haven't been told, let me be the first person to tell you, you are ready. That's really beautiful. And just the concept of giving your gift away to the world, I think is really beautiful. And I have a, a little one at home too. And so I'll start talking to her about that too. That, that's Amazing. a really great thought. So I highly, highly recommend Backable. I think I think I bought the Kindle version on Amazon. So it's definitely on Amazon. Yeah. And uh, But also check out backable.com. So Neil, thank you so much for coming by. I really appreciate your time and thanks for all the wisdom and the enthusiasm. Really appreciate it. This has been great, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to cruise. Founders and friends.
Business and Friends with your host, Scotty Olm. Scotty.